So here we are in our study in Hebrews. We're in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 this morning. Verse 8 is where we're going to start reading here in just a couple of minutes. If you haven't noticed already, or if you haven't read Hebrews chapter 11 in a little while, this entire chapter is about faith. Our walk in faith with God, what it is, what it looks like. Now remember, a lot of the structure of this chapter is that the writer of Hebrews is actually going to define faith for us, to describe it for us. So here is what it is, but then a lot of the chapter are examples of what it looks like. Here's what it is. Here's how it actually gets fleshed out. So it's all about faith here in Hebrews chapter 11. As we do this, let's remind ourselves of a couple of things in this book. The writer of Hebrews is actually really concerned that these people he's writing to, these people that he loves dearly, are being tempted to let go of their faith, to give up. We have hints through the book, and some of the hints are actually rather dramatic, that these believers, these original believers, are suffering persecution simply because they're followers of Jesus Christ. Some of them have had all of their property taken away from them. Some of them have actually found themselves in prisons simply because they named the name of Jesus Christ. And the writer wants to make sure that his readers don't give up on the faith. So there are a few of these moments throughout this book so far. One of the first ones comes in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, God's rest, still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. God's rest, what God has promised us, is still out there for us. Let's not fail to get there. He says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish or lazy in the faith but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitators. Let's look at their lives, learn how they did it, and learn how to do it ourselves, who through faith and patience inherited the things that God promised. And the last thought in Hebrews 10 that opens the door to our discussion of faith in chapter 11 is this. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We don't quit. We don't stop. We have faith. We persevere. And in so doing, we inherit the promises. We preserve our souls. So then he says, faith is. And here's what faith looks like. This is chapter 11. So Hebrews 11 not only defines faith in God for us, but provides all these examples of how people lived out their faith. Some people have called Hebrews 11, the the hall of faith. Let's think of it a little bit like a portrait gallery. The Old Testament's a big book. I don't know how many of you have tried to actually read through the entire Old Testament, but the Old Testament's a big book. There's a lot going on there. Hebrews chapter 11 is relatively short. So what the writer does is the writer picks a few of those individuals in the Old Testament, just a few of them. And then out of those stories, he just grabs one or, two, uh, one or two events inside of their stories. So a few of the people in the Old Testament. And then a few moments inside of their lives to then talk about what faith actually looks like. And a little bit later on the chapter, he's even going to say this. Time fails us to speak of everybody else and everything else. So one of the things that Hebrews 11 encourages us to do is to get excited about what we read here in this chapter 
and then go back and read their stories to learn more about who these people were, to learn more about the others who aren't even mentioned or described in Hebrews chapter 11. So there's a lot more going on, but the stories that we're going to focus on this morning have to do with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's a big deal for us. He's a big deal in Scripture. Paul, in the book of Romans, he calls Abraham the father of everyone who has faith. So for those of us who now claim the name of Jesus Christ, are learning what it means to live this life of faith, we look to Abraham as our spiritual father, the one who sort of leads the way for us. So his life is a big deal. He's an example as we learn what it means to follow God faithfully in this life. So as we talk about at least a couple of the stories in the lives of Abraham and Sarah, his wife, there are a few things that we're going to pay attention to. The first is this. Our obedience to God always changes our lives. It just always changes our lives. We get caught up in doing life the way that we want to do it. It becomes comfortable for us in our sin. But when we learn what it means to obey God instead of ourselves or other voices in our lives, it's just going to change our lives. And Abraham's story is a dramatic example of how that happens. We're also going to see this, and this is one of the things that sometimes trips people up in Hebrews chapter 11. The faithful are far from perfect. Does that sound okay with you guys? <laughs> the faithful are far from perfect. Now, that's important because sometimes when we hear stories of faith, not just those in Scripture, but we hear of other people who've gone before us, family members, friends, stories that we hear. We, we hear of their great faith, and we hear of the great things that God did because of their faith. And, and sometimes our inclination is, is to think that, well, that's all that their lives were. They were just lives of faith, and they woke up in faith, and they went to bed in faith, and they ate in faith, and they, they did everything. Well, it turns out that perfection is not necessary for a faithful life. Yes, yes, sir. We're growing in our obedience. We're growing in our Christ-likeness and in our faith. But we discover that the faithful are far from perfect. And we're also going to see this. This is a big deal, guys. A life of faith begins with a vision of a great, big God. How big is the God that you believe in? Really. How great, how perfect, how good, how holy how righteous, how glorious is the God that you actually believe in. And a life of faith begins with a vision of a great big God. Let's begin reading Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 8. The story goes like this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, who was his son, and then Jacob, his grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, this is how Abraham's story with God begins. By faith, Abraham obeyed, and he went to a place where he did not know he was going. This part of Abraham's story, you can go back and you can read. It's actually the very beginning of Abraham's story in Scripture. It happens in Genesis chapter 12. This is where the whole story gets started. And really what you need to do to grab the context for our passage this morning is at least understand what happens 
in Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Just those first four verses. And here's what happened. God comes to Abraham. At that point, his name is Abram. A little bit later on in his life, God's going to change his name to Abraham. That's how we know him. But God comes to Abraham, and he's living comfortably in his father's land somewhere else other than what we would call Israel or Judah. He's living someplace else rather than the promised land. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up from your father's land, and I want you to leave. I want you to go to a place that I will show you later on, and I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to make your name great. In fact, I'm going to bless all of the nations of the world through your family. That's how his story starts. We have no other context. We don't know what else happens to him before that moment. It just begins with God saying, get up and go, and here's my promise to you. And you know what happens in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4? What is Abraham's response? The text says this, so he did it. He went. He picked up his family, and he just left. Where to? God says, well, I'll show you later on. Which direction do I go? Well, I'll show you when you get up and you start going. How long is this journey going to take? Well, you're going to find out as you go along. He doesn't have the answer to any of those questions. He just does what God told him to do. So Abraham's story from the very beginning is critical to our understanding what it means for us to have faith in this God. This notion of trust, confidence in God. Remember how we talked about what this word means. It's trust in, it's confidence in. It means to be persuaded of. Abraham somehow was persuaded that what this God said was right, and so he did it. And So this is why Paul begins to talk about it in terms of being the father, the spiritual father, example of our faith in God. Here's part of how Paul puts this in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. He says, for what does the scripture say? And it says this, I believe, a little bit later on Genesis 15. It says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just believe that what God said was true. He had this understanding of who God was. So when God spoke to him and he knew it was God, he just believed that it was right. Even as difficult as it was going to be, even as many questions as were yet unanswered, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, right relationship with God. Paul goes on to say a little bit later in Romans 4.13, he says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This acting out of right relationship in God through our trust in who He is, through our trust in His will, through our trust in His voice, that it's right and that it is good. This is how it comes to Abraham. So notice this about Abraham because this is going to come back a little bit later on as we sort of move further through Abraham's story. Abraham is given a promise and he's given a command. He's given a promise and he's given a command. Here's what I'm going to do with you, Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your family great. And beyond that, I'm going to bless everybody else through the family that I am going to give you. This promise that he gives him is astounding. The command that he gives him is, so go. I'm going to show you where to go, but what I need you to do is to pick up and go now. And Abraham, of course, just goes. 
Now here's part of what the text tells us. He says that it says that Abraham went and he lived as a foreigner. Where he went. He lived as a foreigner in the land that God promised him. Now, as we think about that on, on one level, that just sort of makes common sense. Abraham picks up from one culture, one set of religious values, one set of uh, sort of uh, linguistic and cultural structures. God moves him into another land where there's a different language, there's a different cultural structure, there's a different religious structure. So he literally lives as a foreigner in this land. But we're going to notice this because the text is going to come back to this a little bit later on as well. It's not just that Abraham is a foreigner in this land. Abraham now has a different homeland altogether. Abraham's homeland does not become the promised land. He will physically live there. Abraham's homeland becomes the promise of God. Abraham's homeland becomes the promise of God. That's where he lives. That's what begins to structure his life. The promise of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God, that is home for Abraham. And as the father of our faith, we need to be pressed on this from time to time. Because Scripture is going to constantly use this language for you and for me. That everywhere the followers of Jesus Christ are, they are strangers in a strange land. That we physically live here, and this is, this is where we belong, and we love where we belong, in our neighbor, but we are most at home, not in our culture's values and structures, but in the values and the structures of the promise of God. This becomes our homeland now. So we follow Abraham, right? So he goes because his eyes are on, the text says, the city that God would build for him. Now, you learn as you read through Abraham's story that it's not just Abraham and Sarah and maybe a couple of friends and five goats. It turns out that it's Abraham and Sarah in this massive household. Abraham is a rather wealthy and successful businessman. His herds, his household, the people who are with him who are not biologically related to him are not just his ranchers and his shepherds, but there are soldiers who fight with him as well. I mean, this is a large group of individuals. Abraham could have gone into the promised land, cleared off a couple of hillsides, and built his own city. The text says that's not what he was looking for, though. What he was looking for was the city who, that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, not him. So as he follows God, his eyes see what are po- what's possible through God, not through what he can do. Right? So this is... This is hope in God. This is anticipation based on the promise of God. That I learn how to obey because I'm learning to see what's possible because of God. Now, we can't talk about faith without every now and then the, the pastor sort of pushing a couple of buttons. I just, it's, it's actually in the contract I signed when I left the seminary. That every now and then I have to make you feel just a little bit uncomfortable. What does it mean to follow God? And as we watch Abraham do these things and we begin to sort out, who, who does that? Picks up from his home and then goes to a place he doesn't even know where he's going. It's an act of faith. Let's ask a few questions, and maybe some of these questions will push us in some different ways. Let's look at the, question, the first question like this. 
What do we know now about our lives compared to what God is asking us to do? Think about that for a second. What do we know now? What do we have answers to now? What can we actually wrap our minds around now versus what God is asking us to do? What Abraham knew was his former homeland. What he knew is where he was raised by his father and grandfather. What he knew was all of that. What God promised him came on the other side of stuff that he did not know. Does that make sense? Sometimes our faith presses us into areas that we do not know because we trust the voice of God to take us there. Does following God ever mean that you and I need to act based on God's command instead of based on our grasp of this situation? Where am I going? I'll tell you later on. How much food should I bring? Well, you're going to find out along the way. Do you and I demand comfort and security from God first, and then we'll do what He asks us to do? Do you and I demand that we get answers to every single one of our questions first? Then we'll do what God asks us to do. An author by the name of Karen Swallow Pryor, she writes it this way, A faith that never feels challenged is most likely dead. What do I know about life versus what God is actually asking me to do? What kinds of answers do I have versus what God has actually revealed about His will for my life, even in His Word? Am I being asked to act on faith in God? And so here we are, kind of at that first major thought. Obedience will always change my lifestyle. Abraham's eyes were on God's city God's kingdom, God's will, God's way of seeing and doing things. And even though he did not know all of it in advance, his eyes were on God. And so his obedience changed his life. So he trusts God. He sees things differently, which means then that he begins to behave differently. And as I kind of thought this through, and I'm running this around in my own heart and mind, this question came to me. What would life look like if God's commands to me were the only thing that actually made sense? What if God's commands to me, when they became clear to me, when I read them, when I understand, when I understand them in my relationship with God, when they come clear to me, my first and natural reaction is, well, that's obvious. It's the only way to do things, right? Now, who knows what Abraham was thinking, but the text is like, God says, Abraham, go. And Abraham goes, well, it's the most obvious thing I would do now is I would go. Now, that's important because in my brokenness and in my sin and in my own personal shortcomings, what's most natural to me is my own brokenness and my own sin and my own shortcomings. That's what makes sense to me. But what if life were changing in faith in God? And that when I read his word, I would think, why would I do anything else? How would life be different for me, for us, if that were the case? Abraham's story, what he does by faith, it's, it's, it, it is, it's amazing. 
Well, the writer of Hebrews adds now to Abraham. He begins to add the rest of his family members to Abraham's story. And where he goes now is he goes to the story of Sarah and the promise of giving birth to a child. So, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. We get a couple of really interesting verses. It says this, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man in him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Those first few verses, you read that story in Genesis chapter 12. This story, these two verses, you read this story in Genesis chapters 17 and 18. So in Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham and says, you guys are going to go ahead and give birth to a son. Now, this is, this is important for a lot of reasons. One reason is this. Sarah has been barren, has not given birth to a child at all. And God has promised them. Through your children, I'm going to bless the rest of the world. Your children will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. She hasn't given birth. In Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham, you and Sarah, this time next year, you're going to have a baby. Genesis chapter 18, Sarah overhears that conversation. By this time next year, you're going to have a baby. Now, here's, here's kind of the twist to this part of the story, if you don't know this part of the story. When God comes to Abraham and says, this time next year, you're going to have a child, Abraham is 99 years old. That's why Hebrew says, you know what? At that point, you're as good as dead. <laughs> right? <laughs> and God comes to that guy and says, you're going to have a kid. He's 100 when they give birth to Isaac. Sarah is 90 when they give birth to Isaac. When Abraham hears that, it says Abraham laughed. Now, he's not ashamed of his laughter. This is the laughter of shock. We tried to fix this. We made a mistake trying to fix this, God. And you're telling me now we're going to have a kid? I can't, I'm, I'm too old to stay up all night long, right? Who knows? He's not ashamed of his laughter because it's laughter of shock. Sarah hears it in the next chapter, and she laughs, and she becomes worried and ashamed of that because it's this sense of this is impossible. There's no way that this can actually happen. But Hebrews fills us in. That's the, the nugget of the story that we give there. And the book of Hebrews says, well, as a matter of fact, there still was in both Abraham and Sarah faith in God so that this actually happens, so that they actually conceive and give birth to a son. There's enough trust in both Abraham and Sarah that the promise of God would be fulfilled. And they give birth when they're 190 years old. They give birth to their son Isaac, the promised son, as Genesis puts it. Isaac is going to give birth to others, and one of his sons will be Jacob, and Jacob will be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of a sudden now, and we're not just talking about a large family, we're starting to talk about a nation of people just as God promised. But as we take a look at the story of Sarah and the promise of her giving birth to a son, we realize now that we're amongst the stories of the imperfect faithful. People who don't know quite what to do with what God has told them is going to happen. People who might at some point or another stumble, hey, this is impossible, how can this happen? We're amongst the imperfect faithful. But we see that showing trust, and Hebrews makes sure that we see this, that showing trust and confidence in the voice of God is not the same thing as being a perfect human being 
but it's learning how to show trust in God, even in confusing situations. So we ask a question like this. Can God still tap you on the shoulder to do something for Him if you're imperfect? Of course He can. In fact, this might come as a surprise to some of you. Those are the only kind of people that God has to work with, right? I love this thought. God builds beautiful things from crooked timber. That's the only timber he has to work with. Now flip that question around just a little bit. Should you avoid following God and giving him your trust because you know how imperfect you are? Of course not. In fact, that becomes a cop-out. I've heard it. Some of you have heard it when you've tried to invite people to church. Sometimes the reaction is, well, everyone who goes there is perfect. I'm not. I just can't go, right? I don't have the right clothes. I don't smell right. I don't look right. My life is not right. I just can't go. Well, we see different things the way that God uses people. Several years ago, we had a young man who was coming to church with his family, and he was, he was kind of struggling. He was, he was kind of working his way into church a little bit, and one week, just in the middle of the week, he just shows up at the door, he knocks on the door, and he's broken, and he's having a hard time. So we're talking to him out there in the foyer, and he begins to give me this story. He says, my, I'm so imperfect. I don't even know if I can dress my kids right to come to church and, and on and on. And, and so here's what I did with him. I, I said, I want you to come and see something that I see. So I brought him into the sanctuary, and I literally brought him down front here. And he had already told me at this point, he said, you know, when I walk in, everybody looks nice, and they're raising their hands, and they look like their lives are perfect. I mean, he's using language like that. And I said, I want you to see something. And yeah, I don't use names when I do this, right? I didn't call you people out. <laughs> but I said, over here, this person has gone through this, 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 and this. And when you see them raising their hands and praising God, it's because God has been good to them, not because they're good people. This family over here has had this happen to them. It may not look like this kind of devastating brokenness is in the pew right in front of you, but they're here worshiping God because of how good God is. And over here, this is going on. And over here, I want you to see something else. This is a lot of crooked timber, but God is doing amazing things in people's lives. This can be you too, right? These are the stories of the imperfect faithful. Genesis 17, which is where this story is, it opens with this phrase. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, God appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the name of God that means I am the God who is sufficient. That's how that story of the promise of the birth of Isaac begins. Abraham, whatever comes after this moment, I need you to know that I am more than sufficient for whatever else is going to happen. Whatever I tell you to do now, I want you to know that I am more than sufficient for everything that will follow. If anything goes wrong or crooked after this point, I need you to know before we get started, I am more than sufficient for whatever will happen. A life of faith begins with a vision of a great big God. I am El Shaddai. I am the God who is sufficient for all of your needs. 
I need to learn to begin my life of faith with that vision. I need to begin to learn how to process everything that walks through my life through those lenses. That God is a God of complete sufficiency. Learn how to fit your problems into a great God. Don't try to fit God into how great you think your problems are. If you and I begin with a vision of how great God is, whatever problem I face is going to be smaller than that great God. If I begin with a vision of how great and insurmountable my problem is, and I try to fit God into that, God's going to be smaller than my problem. Before it begins, he says, I am El Shaddai. I am the God who is all sufficient. That's the beginning of Genesis 17. I told you that Abraham's story begins in Genesis chapter 12 with the promise of a family. Abraham's original call in Genesis chapter 12 happens when he's 74 years old. It's been 25 years since God has given him this promise. So here's something else you and I need to learn about a life of faith, a life of trust in God. God sometimes delays, but he always has reason for his delay. At least to us, it looks and feels like to delay because we read the word of God, we hear the voice, the promise of God, and what is natural in us rises up. Well, why not me? Why not now? Why not yesterday? At any moment, it's right, these things rise up within us, but sometimes God just waits. But he always has reason for that. When is it right for Abraham and Sarah to hear that they're going to get pregnant? God knows when exactly the right moment is. When is it right for Isaac to actually be born? Well, God knows when that moment is. So faith here, what we're learning about faith here, sometimes it means being able to trust enough to wait on the wisdom and the power of God. I know what his promises are. I may even know what his commands are inside of my life. But I may need to learn how to wait. I may need to learn how to be faithful while I wait on that. Remember how the book opens. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. It is the evidence of things that we don't see. We read that, our first thought probably is, well, I don't physically see God, but I have trust that he exists and he really is who he says he is. That's true. We also don't see the future. God does. And who am I going to trust with the future? To learn how to trust God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Peter talks about something very similar. It's not just Abraham and Sarah trying to figure this out, guys. It's, it's every follower of Jesus Christ trying to figure this out sometimes. But Peter encourages us. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The patience of God is our grace. And sometimes it just looks like waiting to us. So when God tells Abraham and Sarah what's going to happen, both of them realize what they see is that this is physically impossible for us. Both of them laughed at the promise. So let's notice this about a life of faith as well. Guys, sometimes God limits our resources 
so that we can learn to revel in His resources. May I even say this? Sometimes God's, God eliminates our resources so that we can learn to revel in His instead of ours. It's impossible for us to have kids. And God says, well, look who you're talking to, buddy. Let's make this happen. We're accustomed to dealing with our life's stuff with our resources. I can fix this. I can pay for this. I can figure this out. I can handle this. I can arrange things so that this goes right instead of wrong. We can get this fixed. We're used to doing our stuff with our stuff. Sometimes God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take care of your life with my stuff. And you're going to learn to give me glory instead of yourself. You're going to learn what it means to trust me, to wait on me, and you're going to watch me do things you did not think could ever happen because I have resources that none of you have, right? When it's clear that only God could have done it, then it is clear who gets the glory for what is done. As I walked through this, I was thinking through other parts of Scripture, and I was reminded... Of Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel shows up in this room with this young girl, the unmarried virgin named Mary. He says, hey Mary, you're going to give birth to a son. In fact, it's going to be the son of God, the son of David. And God will give your son the throne of his father David forever and ever. And Mary says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel says, well, it's going to happen because the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And keep in mind, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And when Mary responds in what we know as the Magnificat, Mary's psalm that she writes in response to that, here's how it opens. And this isn't the throwaway line. Here's how it opens. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies what I have finally been able to do. I've learned something here. I have none of these resources, but God wants something done. And I have learned that now God will receive all my glory. This is just sometimes how God does it. And we learn that God deserves all of the glory. Abraham and Sarah, these significant moments in the Old Testament... We're learning what it means to live a life of faith. So the writer of Hebrews sort of breaks in, gives us a little bit of an interlude, interlude to make sure we understand what's going on in this passage of Scripture. In chapter 11, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, this place in God where I am going to find my home. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Their eyes are on what God can do. So God has made this. God has prepared the way. God has built them his city for them, and that's where they are at home. This phrase is, is something that the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to in rather dramatic fashion later on, but we need to make sure that we hear this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. They see them in faith and greeted them from afar. These all, so there are a few names that the writer has talked about so far. He's talked about Abel. He's talked about Enoch. He's talked about Noah. Now he's talked about Abraham and Sarah. And he's going to talk about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And on and on the story goes. These all died in faith. Notice this, guys. And again, this harkens back to something the writer of Hebrews is making sure that we hear. Every single one of them ran all the way to the tape. Every single one of them finished the race in faith. None of these people stopped halfway through and said, this is it, I'm done, I'm out, and turned around and went home. He said, if Abraham's eyes were on his physical homeland, when things got hard on the way to the promised land, he could have turned around and gone back, but he didn't. Because his eyes were on what God had promised to give him, so he went forward. Every one of them finished the race in faith. Some people run through the tape with their arms raised high, everything is good, and they're done now. Some people limp and stumble and roll through the finish line, but they get there. The writer is telling us, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. Make it to the end of this life in faith, in trust in God. This is something else important. They died in faith, not having seen everything God promised them. So God tells Abraham, I'm going to make your name great, your house great. All the nations of the world will be blessed through your kids. Abraham gets to see one of those born. Maybe that's great to him. But everything else that God promised him does not get fulfilled until long after Abraham is gone. This one challenged me this week. God may call you to follow him in faith so that others can reap the reward. God may call you to live a life of faith so that others will reap the reward. Noah was given promises by God that he saw glimpses of, but he didn't see the completion of. Abraham and Sarah saw glimpses of the completion of that faith, but not the whole thing. They died not having seen all of it fulfilled, and yet they knew that what God said he would do, God was going to do. And sometimes God calls you and me to live a life of faith so that everybody else can see the glory of God. Is my faith all about me? Is it all about what I want God to do for me? Is it all about what I want God to do through me? Sometimes we've got to ask ourselves this kind of question. Is this why I'm following God? Is because my faith is all about me. 
What about my vision of the rest of the body of Christ? What about my vision for the rest of the world and I want what I want them to see because of my life? What about my vision of church, of the local body of believers? What's my role here? What is this for? Could it be that part of my role here is to help build a stable, faithful, enduring, healthy environment so that the next generation can revel in the glory of God? Maybe that's part of my role. So that other people can see the glory of God. What of others who will look on my life, our lives together, and see God and be encouraged. Maybe I'm called to live a life in such a way that long after I'm dead and gone, maybe somebody sees some corner of my life and their conclusion is, look at how great God is. Maybe this is what a life of faith looks like. Here's what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light Shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God be glorified. The text mentions again that they learned how to live as exiles, as strangers in a strange land, not as people who shut off their lives from the rest of the world, not as people who escaped and circled the wagons and waited for the apocalypse, but as people who lived according to the kingdom of God where God put them. We used this phrase over and over again in our study of the book of Acts. But guys, Christians exist. The church has to be different from the world for the sake of the world. This is why we live as different kinds of people in a world that just has a different set of values and structures. The church needs to stick out. Not because we're strange, but because we love Jesus and we follow him, right? So we hear God. We see what's possible in faith. We desire a better city, a more permanent homeland. And then there are two moments to me personally, in Hebrews chapter 11, floor me. At some level, I just don't even know what to do with these two thoughts in the book of Hebrews. The text that we just read essentially finishes with this thought. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now remember, the writer of Hebrews is trying to make sure that you and I are never ashamed to call God our God. He says, you have stuff taken from you. You've had members of your family taken from you. Don't ever be ashamed. Don't ever let any of that make you ashamed of saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But it turns out that something else is also true. God is in heaven. He turns to his heavenly host And he says, look at him. That's my boy. Look at her. I'm her dad. I am not ashamed to say that that's my child. Let's learn what it means to live a life of faith in all that we do 